The number one thing that I'm looking for, it has not yet emerged broadly, is the evolution of the department store to a smaller footprint urban setting. What the department store has right and still has right because it has all of those relationships, contracts, and people who are experienced negotiating them, is it has the ability to adjust the brands and the content of the brands in a space depending on shifts in seasonal, seasonal patterns. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey everyone, Alicia here, and we've been having a lot of conversations around the future of the mall. You know, what it means, how the experience will change, and more importantly, how developers and retailers can and should collaborate in order to better serve new customer needs and expectations. For today's conversation, I had the chance to sit down with Philippe Lanier of East Bank. East Bank is a family-owned and run business, and they specialize in commercial development and urban retail. So they have a lot of experience having these conversations around the best ways to meet customer needs. And most of all, they have been having some fascinating conversations with retailers around how to adapt their partnerships, their lease agreements in light of new uncertainties, new realities surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. So if you're a developer or a landlord, I definitely think this is a relevant conversation for you, but even the brand and retail executives out there that are looking to refine their partnerships, find new ways to better serve customers in local areas, in these these malls and and urban retail experiences. Philippe also shares some great perspective around what the future of that experience will be. So with that, everyone meet Philippe and hear what he has to say. I think he brings a lot of great insights to the table. Philippe, thanks so much for taking the time out. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, to kick off our conversation, why don't you share a little bit about you, your work, and, and of course, a little bit about East Bank as well. Sure. Well, I run my family business, which was started by my father, Anthony, uh, who's still uh, very active within the business. And uh, everybody in the family in one way or the other participates. We get along great. It's a lot of fun. The bulk of the business is in real estate development. We're a commercial developer, and a large part of what we've developed is urban retail, which I think is the topic of the call. But we have also dipped into a few other areas because my father's a born entrepreneur. You can't contain his enthusiasm. And we've opened a few restaurants that we uh, own and manage. We opened up an eight-court squash facility that, that we run. And then we also started 20 years ago a technology service company that has some 200 programmers and does problem solving on the technology side for a lot of different Fortune 500 companies. I love that. I love people with that entrepreneurial mindset. So I think we're going to have a good conversation today. But because your business is so rooted in that family history, obviously, this this current situation is, is hitting all businesses in different ways, but especially people that built their businesses from the ground up, right? So I have to ask you, how are you guys navigating the current situation around COVID? Um, and of course, given your focus on commercial development and retail, where are your priorities right now? What, what, what are you guys thinking kind of going through in the day-to-day right now? 
Sure. Well, at Start, like any other company, we're not unique. The, the first thing that we did was assess the problem, protect our employees. And once we got over that period in the first 10 or 15 days, we worried about our balance sheet and made sure that we had enough cash to ride out a, a rough environment, which we did successfully. We, we did apply for the PPP loan, as many others did, and received it, which is extremely helpful. And I applaud the government for putting that in place. And then we got to the really hard work, which is dealing with, with what's happening with uh, um, real estate and as the frontline retail. I think retail is the first sector that has seen the challenges of, of this environment, but I wouldn't be surprised to have the office sector follow in suit in the next few months. And uh, residential, we own some residential. That's also been relatively good, but may see some challenges down the line as the economy weakens. But the real challenge in retail is you have on both sides of the picture, you have companies that have furloughed people and uh, reduced costs and now are addressing the problem with a limited team. And you have landlords, either individual landlords that own a building or, or people with partnerships like we, ha- like we have that are dealing with a massive volume of lease adjustments and interacting with tenants and understanding the depth of their challenges and their business and their balance sheet and really becoming analysts into the fiscal health of our tenants in a very short, compressed period of time. So we're all working 18-hour days, spending a lot of time on Zoom calls and, and talking with people and just trying to structurally get ahead of this, this challenge. Yeah, and really fantastic point, I think, that you made around just the general uncertainty surrounding anything involving real estate, right? Whether it's um, retail, you know, restaurants or office space, you know, housing. We're seeing more and more developments around companies that are saying to their employees, oh, you can just work from home forever now <laughs> if you really want to. So that that may lead to, you know, a lot of office space vacancies, which will, will kind of have a trickle-down effect that's fascinating. But I want to get back to the conversations that you're having with your tenants right now, because we're obviously looking at a lot of our content from the brand's perspective, the retailer's perspective. And you're you're right, right now, they're just trying to figure out what's the most strategic and profitable way for us to move forward? How do we get our finances in line? A lot of them are dealing with a lot of excess inventory, their timelines are completely thrown off. So a lot of factors, I think, at play for retailers right now that they have to navigate. So want to dig deeper into those types of conversations that you're having with your brand and retail partners right now, you know, how you guys are kind of collaborating and working together to figure out the best path forward? Because I I know that's been a really critical conversation point as we look at the future of the mall, so to speak, as as a broader trend or topic. So what's really been top of mind for you guys right now? It's a good question. In order to fully answer it, you know, listen to the story in context, the upside of the environment right now is that that I get to have, you know, individual conversations with the people left doing the work. So it's more more likely the people that are in charge, they're making decisions and we'll have many touch points. You know, the first first line of conversations a month ago, now we're getting into our lease amendments and they're certain to be successive conversations as their business models evolve over the course of the year. And that allows you to build a trust with your tenant. So that's a great opportunity. And it's very important, I think, for a landlord who can to take that opportunity to evidence that they are a face on the other end of the line and understand the problem and doing their best to help. 
none of us really know the full scope of the challenge, how many more times our tenants in their different touch points in, in the community will be uh, faced with challenges, repeated shutdowns, or even that elusive search for profitability. So what we are doing as landlords is we're trying to give context to each tenant and their problems and ascertain the, the strength of their leadership and how quickly they're able to adapt to challenges coming down the line. And we're trying to get through this contractual phase as quickly as possible and build some lease contracts that, that might address some lease amendments that might address a variety of challenges that come in the next 18 months so that our tenants are able to focus on what they should be focusing on, which is opening the stores, finding a way to reposition their merchandise, connect with the customer and, and, and establish a new business model. And because we're having conversations along the way, we can understand in each individual case where we as landlords might be able to lend tools to help them in that journey. I love that. And I've been hearing so many, you know, retail experts, you know, commentators really say that a lot of the big problems with the underperforming or larger mall properties is that there is that lack of collaboration or alignment, looking at it from the landlord's perspective or, or the developer's perspective and, and what they need, but also from the brand's perspective, right? Because everyone kind of has to come together and create that ultimate customer experience, right? And I, and that lends itself really well to, to my next question for you, I think, around, you know, your kind of take on the state of the retail market, especially as we look at it through the lens of the mall experience, right? Or, or these more comprehensive shopping experiences. So a lot of the conversations we've been having, a lot of folks have been saying that Everything surrounded COVID-19, right? The trends that have been emerging or the disruptions that have hit a lot of more legacy brands, I guess you would say, that these trends aren't necessarily new, like, say, the shift to digital, um, the increasingly demanding consumer. Like, these aren't new things, right? It's just really that it's it's accelerated so significantly and we kind of saw this spike, right? And, and no one was fully prepa- prepared for that dramatic shift. And that's why, you know, retailers have been struggling so much to adjust and adapt. I guess from your perspective, since you're looking at this from, from the retail landlord's perspective, would you say that this is an accurate take, you know, based on the conversations that you've been having? So you made reference to new business models, you know, new, new ways of working together. Would you say that like this reality that we're in now is just kind of a, a shakeout of acceleration of trends that you've been talking about for a while? Absolutely. I think that that's correct, not only for retail, but for all industries. A, a crisis like this, you know, signs, shines a spotlight on the things that are working well and then shines a spotlight on the things that really have stopped working and probably shouldn't exist anymore. And to tie into what I said before, given the inability to predict so many things that might happen because this is hitting us on a global scale and it impacts everything from logistics to currency exchange to governments. I mean, it's really unpredictable. The most important thing I think a brand has, it's its people and its leaders, because those are the ones that can really pivot quickly and tie in what the brand was before the COVID crisis hit us and what it will turn into and, and lend vision to that journey. And yes, digital and technology is a critical part of where the world is going. You know, I know that intimately with with that branch of my business. It's a critical part of the journey. But 
what this really shines a spotlight on as well is how critical that physical store is to the puzzle. It's a real partnership between the physical identity of the brand, the digital identity of the brand, and how the two complement each other to ensure that a customer can always access the brand and understand its story in all facets. You know, there's not one answer for how that is going to evolve. It's different for the furniture industry. It's different for different types of retailers. It's different for price points. It's different for uh, fast fashion versus uh, seasonal fashion. And, you know, in some ways, it could be exciting to watch it happen if it doesn't feel like it's so much work. Yeah, I think those are some great points. So so to that end, you know, there, there have been so many stories, articles, you know, expert Q&As around the mall of the future, the experience of the future for, for the mall specifically. A lot of developers focusing on that perfect combination of digital and physical interaction like you just noted, but also just the right combination of retail, entertainment, food. I mean, we're, we're based in New Jersey and, and you know, we, we've heard American dreams so much. My, I'm about to go cross-eyed. And that was shaken up as a result of COVID. So I guess my question for you is, despite all of these conversations, why do you think the mall experience has still struggled so much to kind of find its proper footing? And, you know, developers have, have struggled so much to figure out what that right combination is to perfect the experience. I mean, again, you're coming at it from a very unique perspective because you're developing these retail partnerships. You're trying to figure out from a business standpoint what makes sense for the consumer. So would love your take on the struggle of developers and landlords and what you think is really key moving forward despite all of these uncertainties that we've talked about so far. Yeah, you know, in some ways, maybe I'm lucky that I don't I don't own a mall and I just have a large urban exposure in a consolidated place. But but the answer addresses both of them, I think, in that a mall in some capacity was in the past a consolidated space where you could go and in one journey run your errands, you know, get the things that you need, have a few touch points of enjoyment. There was some entertainment. There was some food. And you could do it all in one place. And today, that concept of running your errands as the driving force on how a mall is is structured may not be as relevant because you can get some of those things done remotely. And you really have to, as a developer, focus on the experience side of things, which is something I'm sure you and your readers have read about in many different formats. And so that is the same tomorrow. You know, the malls have relevance, but they are relevance as a place to spend a couple of hours. And why would I spend my time there versus somewhere else? But they come with the added challenge now that you have to ensure that the entire area is safe for the people that are coming. And you are much more responsible for that in a mall setting than you are in an urban footprint. In an urban footprint, I have to make sure that my individual tenants have the access to the needs that they can and that I collaborate with the local community to do what I can to manage traffic and and to um, manage curbside pickup and parking and stuff like that. But I don't have to manage the air quality and the journey to get to the store. I just have to make sure that uh, the space inside the store has all the tools that they need to have uh, their own particular space clean. So I maybe have less challenges than some other landlords out there. Does that answer your question? I know I kind of jumped around a bit, but... 
Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And I'm glad you kind of brought up the varying struggles depending on the developer or the landlord, because there have been conversations around, you know, what are the implications for these outdoor experiences, right? Like it's not a single or like a few points of entry that you can have someone easily manage, take temperatures, make sure, you know, everyone has the proper safety guidelines in place. You know, it's a bit more open. There's a bit more risk there. So I think there are so many factors looking at it from the mall experience perspective, there are so many factors now that it isn't just like the experience. It's just baseline health and safety, right? That That's going to be playing a much bigger role. And, and I was actually going to ask you about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, you may, you know, not to skip from where I think you want to go, but you may find that, that there's some developers out there that take the roofs off of their malls. I mean, do they really need to be in enclosed space? It, it really depends on where they are geographically and how weather challenges the experience, but, but maybe they don't. Yeah, it's definitely an area to watch because, I mean, those health and safety measures are, are ever-present, especially as brands and retailers try to determine, like, what's the best way for us to show our consumers that they are safe here and make them feel at ease and make them want to go back to the store? Because I know I know some people, I've, I've seen it on social media, people are just, like, ready to go out. They're, like, over it. But others are very cautious and are, are worried that, you know, companies aren't taking the proper precautions. So I, I guess it is, a, like, a very delicate balance moving forward. But, I mean... As far as, you know, your business strategy moving forward, of course, taking into account experience, you know, what consumers want and expect from the shopping experience. I want to dig into the types of brands and retailers that you may be looking to build partnerships with because we've seen so many shakeouts, you know, from more established legacy retailers. That landscape, I'm sure, is only going to continue to change, you know, as we kind of go through leveling out the curve, you know, the recovery process is going to be months, if not several years that we see this from a timeline standpoint. So I guess looking at it from your business's standpoint, I mean, what types of brands and retailers are you aiming to reaffirm your relationship? So, you know, doubling down on that collaboration, that that relationship building, but also what new brands are you trying to onboard, kind of bring into bring into the mix because, you know, now that we're largely online, a lot of DTC brands, a lot of emerging brands. So is there like an opportunity there, like as things start to open up more and people start to get out and go to stores? Yeah. The number one thing that I'm looking for, it has not yet emerged, you know, broadly, but I hope it gets there quickly, is the evolution of the department store to a smaller footprint urban setting. Because what the department the department store has right and still has right because it has all of those relationships, contracts, and, and people who are experienced negotiating them is has the ability to adjust the brands and the content of the brands in a space depending on shifts in seasonal, seasonal patterns. So I don't have to get into a 10-year contract with one brand that may lose relevance in five years in this ever-changing world, I have a contract to provide space to a manager of the space that brings in different merchandise as it evolves. And then I've outsourced some of the challenge. But that has not yet evolved. You have brands like Neighborhood Goods that are doing a great job 
in not only managing a diverse inventory, but always bringing very young, fresh brands that people don't quite know about into the mix. And you have seen, you know, uh, versions of some of the department stores dipping their toes into this model. If it accelerates, that's great. And one of the reasons why that also helps me personally as a developer is that my properties or our properties are historical, which gives them a lot of charm, but makes it difficult to move walls. So if brands decide that they want 40% less or 40% more square footage as an industry, and then the brokerage community takes that up and just starts running with it, I just can't change the shape of my stores the way that a mall can. So this is where malls particularly may have an advantage to urban retail. But even in the malls, all of that movement costs money. It costs money moving walls. It costs money in redesigning your, your ventilation systems. So being able to lean on somebody that can take the space the way it is and can themselves figure out how to best manipulate it to bring merchandise in that fits the demand of the audience in a flexible format, you know, that's the ideal retailer of the future. So that's kind of big picture. I could list for you some of my favorite brands, but they were the people that I was, you know, looking for in the last year. And maybe that's different in the next year. But I certainly have to manage good co-tenancy. I have to bring brands onto the street that understand their audience, that understand that balance between digital and physical, that know how to make a space, a space that people walk into and get a sense of discovery enjoyment. So people aren't just walking the streets, staring at the windows and walking past the store. That makes an effort to take the windows and make it a showpiece, you know, so that people are curious of what's inside. Those are the types of brands that make the shopping experience memorable and repeatable and bring people back to the neighborhoods so that they, you know, experience new things. Yeah, I love that. So follow-up question for you then in that vein, a lot of conversations now around the future of planning. So you kind of refer to this with neighborhood goods as a great example of a curation of up-and-coming brands, but also a deep understanding of local needs. On the other end of the spectrum, we're hearing a lot of retailers that are struggling with excess inventory. You know, their seasons are completely thrown off. They don't know what the future means for all of this inventory that they have stockpiled. What does it mean for future planning? Do you have a take as far as, you know, how how the future of, you know, assortment planning and merchandising will kind of shake out as a result of all of this? Do you think the localization component is going to take precedence over, say, like seasonality of products? I mean, like, I'm sure there'll always be like seasonal retailers or the holiday season, things like that. But I mean, looking at like those longer scope relationships, you know, more like, you know, department store type brands, like you were saying, like, do you think that their perspectives or or their strategies for for planning are going to need to change? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of opportunity in that. I think the the most important point to pivot around and answer and what you 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 pose as a question is the dichotomy between a, a local store and a national brand. And national brands that have good hiring practices and have a managerial flexibility in their system so that they can let a local branch of their brand have its own determining fabric and not just be cookie cutter um, uh, expansion is going to be more successful, particularly in, in this world where we may be facing challenges in mobility for a period of time. 
you really do have to engage your local community. And a true merchant, you know, is not not a manager that was hired to read the company handbook and represent the brand as is represented all over the place, but somebody that really takes ownership of the store, you know, runs a team in the store, finds some sort of way to individually be allowed to connect with their community and their customers and have a real local flavor to it. So that strategy, to the extent that good leadership can bring that into their infrastructure as they adjust to this, these challenges, I think you'll see brands that can do that show out performance over time. And then tying off from that and answering other parts of your question, that, that can help make a local physical space an extension of the logistics chain of the brand. So it's not just a central warehouse pushing materials out to the store and then uh, whatever they don't sell goes back to the central warehouse and then you know goes out somewhere else. They actually have a liquidation strategy in each spoke of the hub. And if you're going to do that, again, this is somewhere maybe the mall is going to be ahead of the street and getting this done. There's going to be room for new retailers that are liquidators or are packaging and curbside pickup hubs so that if Mall X, or in my case in Georgetown, if I could get a tenant to take a space and just be that UPS of the retail industry, then in that environment, the stores will say, okay, this is what I've left to mark down and I can merchandise it and people can come pick it up at the store. Or this is stuff that I have in my store at the moment I've been shut down or I'm having local sales where nationally or online it's at a different price. People can come to the store and pick it up. And there's an actual place where people go and pick it up easily as opposed to having to walk to the doorway, grab it and cart it back to their car. Yep. A lot of, I think, really exciting possibilities, opportunities for brands and developers, you know, to, to kind of come into the mix to, to help brands pivot successfully. I think you may have sort of answered this question already, but I have to ask you, you know, because you're looking at this from the developer perspective, looking for new opportunities, ways to pivot your business, figure out the best path forward in your relationships, um, developing your leases, things of that nature. What trends are, are really top of mind for you? I mean, what opportunities are you hoping to capitalize upon and hopefully monetize or better integrate into your business moving forward? Again, so many different use cases around collaboration, curbside. I think only more will emerge over time. But what's really what's really uh, taking up a lot of headspace for you right now? I think a topic that I don't see written a lot about because it's getting a bit into the weeds, but I'll try to generalize it. I think the biggest asset that a landlord can provide a tenant is the flexibility of their contract. You've seen the manifestation of that in the explosion of uh, co-working. In my personal opinion, what makes the WeWorks and convenes and industrious of the world such a phenomenon is the ability to break my lease and walk out. And if I know that I can have an easy divorce, then it's a lot easier for me to get into the conversation to begin with. If as a landlord, I can provide a tenant that type of flexibility, it allows the tenant and their real estate board to take risks on new markets faster. And we started implementing those practices over five years ago. And it's one of the ways that we're really able to win some of our tenants where they they were only going to open three or four stores that year in America. And we wanted one of them to be in Georgetown. 
I think that's a real advantage and that those lessons are lessons that I'm bringing to my conversations with the tenants right now to create a lease amendment that gives them the flexibility to react to all sorts of scenarios in the next 18 months as they're faced with the risk of being shut down for a few weeks or a month at a time if if you have a localized outbreak. Coupled with that is this concept of percentage rent and, and the more tenants experience that flexibility in their contract and get used to it, the more they're going to demand it. And the more it forces the landlord to be a partner with the tenant and say, I'm only going to get win and be able to collect when if you as a tenant are winning and and doing sales. And in the past, you may have had a lot of zombie tenants who had maybe four years left on their lease, but were not doing the sales and were suffering under an occupancy cost of 40% or higher. And that's not really good for anybody, but the financial structure behind it, because it doesn't help the shoppers and the co-tenancy. It drains the brand. It dilutes the experience. Unfortunately, as the industry goes in that direction and creates lease contracts that are either totally percentage rent or a hybrid of a base rent that can cover the costs and ensure a minimal profit for the, the building owner and then upside when the brand does well. The challenge with that is it really goes against a lot of the purchase prices that have happened in the last 10 years. The valuation increases based off of the leverage, uh, uh, low leverage loans, the debt covenants that are in place. You know, the whole debt industry is based off of long term promises and predictability. And where you have markets where there's a huge dichotomy between the rent that's being charged as an average market rent and the actual levels of sales that the space is able to generate or the existence of that space is able to leverage into an online growth and online sales. If there's a huge dichotomy, you're gonna have a big problem in the next year and a half. And luckily here in Georgetown, we didn't have that dichotomy. We, we really uh, were much more balanced in the rents that we're charging and the sales that our stores were doing. And I think we'll be able to get back to that pretty quickly. Well, it's great, Philippe. And it seems like you guys are are taking the proper measures again to to make sure that you're empowering, you know, your brand partners, your retail partners, and are adapting as a result of all of these uncertainties, all of these factors that are still very much up in the air and will ultimately impact, I think, the future health of retail, of, you know, the consumer, whether they're going to be eager to go out and spend. So it seems like you guys are always have your eyes and ears towards the future which I think is so critical and I think really speaks to your ability to provide guidance and, and thought leadership to others in, in the same space, uh, whether they're um, you know urban developers or mall, mall developers, landlords. I think there's a lot to be learned there. So to that end, I mean, do you have any closing thoughts or words of advice for you know, not just the retail executive listening, um, we do have some, you know, mall folks out there as, as well that are trying to keep tabs on, on what's happening and how they can adapt as well. So do you have any insight as far as, you know, what they should be focusing on, ways that they can better collaborate and, and better better pivot, you know, in light of all of these new realities that we're all trying to navigate? Sure. Uh, firstly, I want to say that, that I think that, that my company and, you know, our set of challenges we're fortunate. We have great real estate. We live in a great city that that happens to be the source of a lot of liquidity that's solving the nation's problems. So, so we have stability. And what we didn't talk about on this call, and I have to give credit to, is that we have tremendous, tremendous partners. You know, our partnership is predominantly with uh, Jamestown Properties and Acadia Realty Trust. 
those are both extremely well-run companies that have a great attitude, also have great real estate and really respect the relationship between themselves and their tenants. So we benefit from all the good, good decisions they make, and, and hopefully they benefit from the lessons that we learn here. What I can give as advice is that you know, the more you, you peel the onion and the more you dig into it and the more you go through the different scenarios and look ahead, the consequences and the ripples that will go through the economy globally are pretty devastating. And you have to, when you approach this problem, you have to prepare for the tougher times ahead next December. You have to assume that every one of your tenants may not find a profitable model in the next 18 months. And in your, your conversations with them, you have to add some humor and some hope to the discussion and give them a reason to call you back. You need to be one of those, those people that are part of the solution as hard as they, that may be on your bottom line. Because if you're not, then you know none of us have any time. We really don't. I mean, we only have so many hours in the day and we would like to spend half of them on things that give us a little bit of pleasure. And if you're not you know, adding a little bit of that to the conversation, then you're, you may be left in the back of the line in terms of finding a solution. And if you are able to, you know, with your capital structures, if you're able in your relationships with your lenders, to ingrain that patience into your conversation and look at what's life going to be like in 2022, I think you're able to position yourself much better to stabilize and then start focusing on how to react to challenges that come. Love that, Philippe. It has been a real pleasure getting to know you, your business, and how, how you guys are, are looking at the, the current crisis and, and are starting to have these really productive conversations. Again, I think there are a few takeaways from our conversation today that anyone listening can can hopefully apply to their relationships, their business strategies moving forward. So thank you so much for uh, not only taking the time out, but being so open and transparent with the work that your team is doing in light of all of these new realities. It, it was extremely helpful and enlightening. Okay. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it. I enjoyed it. Great. And uh, thanks everyone out there for listening today. Hope you all stay safe, stay well, and um, hopefully stay inspired by all of these great conversations that we're having with experts like Philippe. Thanks everyone and uh, have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.